0: Welcome to The Delling Ad with me James Dellingpole and I'm really excited about a very special event I've got coming up quite soon with our old friend Clive DeCarle. This is my first, well actually it's my second, I lie, or maybe my third. my third delingpole event outside london and the smaller events are, are are really good i mean they don't have the crowds of the london uh, events but they're more intimate and you get more chance to spend quality time with james anyway my special guest is clive de and if you turn up you can discover all sorts of exciting things like is clive's voice really as silky and yet sort of strangely nicotine stained as it sounds on, on the podcast. Can he really be that laid back in in real life? And of course maybe you want to ask him how you cure the big K. The big K of course is something completely different from, from cancer and as you know it's illegal to talk about any alternative methods of treating treating cancer. But Clive can talk about all sorts of other conditions which are quite similar like the one beginning with K. Uh, and we'll talk about other things as well I think Clive is, is is keen to talk about um, the battle for freedom and what we can do to escape the encroaching tyranny. Anyway, the event is in Dorset. I thought, you know, I'd give the, the, the South Coast a chance to experience the Delling Pod and it 's not far it 's outside outside pool at a, uh, a venue called the Hamworthy Club. if any you, of you know the Hamworthy Club. It kicks off about seven I, I might change the time, and make it a bit earlier i don 't know yet but but seven roughly. And it's on the 28th of July. I didn't even mention that, did I? I didn't mention the key detail. 28th of July. July. I'm going to put the booking details um, below. Uh, it's. It, it, It's going to sell out fairly quickly. My events tend to, so I'd get in there quick if I were you, and I really look forward to meeting you. Um, Those of you I've I've met before, and those of you I've never had the, the joy of meeting. Anyway, it's going to be fun. Of course it's going to be fun. look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to The Dudley Pod, and I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but I am so excited, and before I tell you why I'm excited and who he is, not that you don't know already, I want to tell you we've got a new sponsor, which shows how incredibly successful the, the podcast is, and it's a sponsor right up your street. It's the Pure Gold Company. Um, now, we've also got another sponsor Sponsor, um, and they're still with this monetary metals. And that's that you remember is the company where you can own gold and get paid interest on it. But if you don't want to take that route, if you want to own bullion either at home you know, in the form of coins, you know, or, or gold bars you want to stash somewhere, or in a vault in, say, London or Zurich, or where, where I'd keep it because I don't think you want to be storing gold in your own country in a vault, because not after what FDR did when he confiscated the gold, um, then this is the place to go to. Obviously, I get a commission when you buy loads and loads and that helps support the podcast. But I mean, I, I'm advertising it because it's a really great product. They, they, they will deliver gold or silver coins to your doorstep or they will store gold for you in a vault. Anyway, details below the podcast. And without further ado, Brian Gerish. Brian, I owe you an apology. Um, first of all and the apology is for not having you had had you on the podcast earlier I mean you're a legend
1: well James thank you very much for that but of course it's not quite true is it because you did offer me a slot and then I can't remember what came up but something came up at the last moment and I couldn't do it so I'm going to say you you were kind enough to invite me some months ago but I couldn't make it
0: I, 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 it's very decent of you to take the blame, but I would say it's much more down to my, my flakiness. And also, actually, to another thing. I, it's like... I There are sort of more esoteric podcast guests, especially the ones in America, talking about things like, I don't know, Flat Earth or Aliens. I haven't done that. I haven't done Flat Earth or Aliens. Um, but I've always thought, Brian's always going to be there ready for you know and who will deliver a perfect podcast i i came i came um upon you in in my in my normie phase well when i when i was sort of transitioning if you like into slowly the seeds of awakeness were being sown within me um and we used to go on holiday every year to um to, to wales to to this place on the welsh borders um near bilth wells And on the road into Bilth, there was this little sort of hut thing where they sold free-range eggs. But they also... I'm not imagining this, am I? They they sold a copy of UK Column, which is a newspaper as well as a TV series?
1: Well, that's a very interesting story. Well, we we started off from producing a little A5 sheet. Uh, Well, it it was... um, A5, which gave us four A4 sheets if it was folded in half. That's where we started many years ago. And then eventually we were producing a newspaper, which was very like the light is now. And um, we we were able in the beginning, because of a a very generous lady who donated to us, we were able to uh, print uh, quite a few thousand copies a month. And what we did is we distributed those to uh, a number of key people around the country. They, each one of them might take several hundred newspapers and they then distributed them in their local area. So we could never be entirely sure where the newspapers ended up, um, but uh, we, we were certainly pushing them out across the country. Scotland, Scotland and Wales were included. And the other thing we discovered is that many people, uh, if they read it and liked it, would then pass it on to a friend or they might put it in an envelope and send it to a, a friend or a family member in another part of the country. So in those early days, we could often get, maybe speak to somebody and we'd say, how did you find us? And they would say, well, I read a copy of the column we didn't distribute in that area but somebody else had sent it to them
0: yeah so i i can't imagine that there are many people who who follow this podcast who haven't come across you on uk column news um but just tell it though just in case they haven't tell us what it is and what you do
1: Okay, well, I mean, essentially, UK Column is now a, a, a media outlet. Um, we produce news live um, via the internet three days a week. Uh, we also put out a lot of uh, interviews with people. Uh, we have done some, do- uh, we have done some um, documentaries, and we've also done quite a lot of uh, um, panel discussions, so Doctors for COVID Ethics, Um, We've done, well, we did a a lot on the COVID saga and and lockdown, Um, but we've recently um, facilitated the event um, in Totnes, which was Sandy Adams challenging um, the local town council on matters to do with 15-minute cities and Agenda 2030. So we're essentially media. Uh, we're mainly in video, but the website's got a lot of articles on it as well, on many different subjects and many different styles. And we are doing our best to provide quality media, challenging um, what the legacy media have put out, certainly the BBC and the big newspapers, and trying to get uh, you know, an accurate alternative view on what is happening in these crazy times.
0: Yeah, there's, there's really nothing like um, UK column, I think. One of the things I like about what you do um, is, is that it's it's got bottom. It's I mean it's quite dry. It's a lot it's a lot drier than than, than say my conversational you know slightly wacky style. But the thing about people like me is that we although we're partly in the business of entertainment there's a risk that we might be dismissed as a bunch of crazy lightweights. Whereas, I think anyone sitting down and watching UK column news um, would would think, well, these are people who do care about facts and they do care about their research. Um,
1: would you say? Well, we, we certainly do try and do that. But just to set the scene a little bit, we... Um, we started out with feeling that if we were going to get traction in, in what we call Middle England, and um, what do we mean by that? We mean we mean probably people that have got a decent job, people who are uh, also people who might label themselves as professional. Um, we believe that if we were to make any impact in getting truth and facts out about what's really happening, we needed to engage with middle England. Now I'm using that expression on England, but it applies to Scotland and Wales and anywhere in the world. We wanted to grab hold of people in the center of, of uh, uh, society who were capable of thinking for themselves. They, they got some professional base. And our logic was that if we could grab those people, they were capable of making change in their own organization whether they were involved in the NHS or the police or education wherever it was we said what we've got to do is get hold of the central core and we felt to do that we had to be very measured we made a decision that we weren't going to use any bad language on any of our programs so there's no swearing we might include swearing if it's part of a reported article but certainly we never we never swear and uh, my little joke is that I still wear a tie and people say but Brian why do you wear a tie and I say I wear a tie because I'm trying to engage other people who wear suits and ties and so I hope that they see me and think well okay he's properly dressed Uh, maybe I'm going to pay attention to him And I'm going to say, we've got reason to believe that this policy has worked because we are now getting a good engagement with people in Middle England. We've had a lot of professionals come on to be interviewed. We've um, had our MPs with Sir Christopher Chope and uh, Andrew Bridgen more recently. Um, And we've had a lot of uh, very senior professionals from in the NHS and indeed medical professionals overseas. And I think one of the reasons they've come to us is that we are measured, we're quiet in the way we put information across. We try and be as accurate as we can. If we make mistakes, we admit it and correct it. And um, so, yeah, I I think our style has been about right. Um, It can be a bit dry but we're in serious times and another danger of being a little bit light-hearted and flippant is that you can take the heat off a subject which people really need to understand is an exceptionally serious subject. So we are more light-hearted in the UK column extras where members uh, can um, uh, can come into a, a bit of extra time after the news, then we Deliberately relax, and we show a bit more of ourselves. Yes, we've got a sense of humour. Yes, we can have a light-hearted chat about lots of things. But the UK column, we've uh, always tried to go with this very
0: measured style. It's it's interesting to see that the measured, where well, you call it dry, which it certainly is, style was is, is is calculated rather than a sort of accidental fact that you know you're a bunch of sort of middle-aged middle-class blokes uh which is interesting because i I wonder whether that's you come from a military background so you understand psychological warfare you understand how these things you understand the game uh, well you were in the submarine service weren't
1: you no i wasn't that's that's a really important one to correct james because
0: uh, submariners jealously guard. See, 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 we're we're much more cavalier with our research on the jellyfish. No no, 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 no. We ask not. the questions and they get fact-checked no, I, as we answer them. Uh,
1: I, I was, I was uh, what they would call a skimmer. So I, I served in warships, floating on the surface, but my my specialism in in the royal navy was anti-submarine warfare so my job oh, was killing submarines not not finding them the, finding the submarines i did do a couple of very short trips uh, um, in submarines in order to learn how things were done and experience it but my expertise was was out um principally finding and tracking those nasty russian nuclear submarines in the atlantic or Terrible. off the eastern seaboard of of
0: the state and as as part of your training were you shown that scene in the cruel sea where they dropped the depth charges amid the the the, the floating shipwrecked sailors
1: well <laughs> the concept is still there um depth charges don't get dropped in that way and Most of the uh, technology to destroy submarines is about launching torpedoes um, at the submarine. So the torpedo leaves the helicopter or the surface ship and then goes on its own search pattern to find and hit and hopefully destroy the submarine. It's a bit bit like an upgraded anti-tank guided weapon.
0: Right. Now that you're, you're fully awake, probably even more awake than you were in your early days of, of when you were just running a newspaper, um, do you look back on your, on your career in the Navy and all that stuff you were fed about the Russians being, you know, the, the demonisation of the Russians and so on? Do you feel now that you were, you were sold a pup, or do you think there was an element of truth in what you were told?
1: Uh, well i think my reaction would be that there was uh, well, there was more than an element of truth at the time because my my time in the navy was absolutely cold war i was i was in the navy from 72 to 93 so i was right across key cold war time and of course at that time we 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 were dealing um with the communist regime within uh, Russia and Eastern Europe and uh, that was clearly not a nice regime you know you had uh, you had um, the KGB operating you had um, uh, the secret police in Germany and it was quite clear that under the surface in, in Russia in the Eastern Bloc there was some pretty nasty stuff going on And there was clearly sufficient weapons within the Warsaw, uh, the Russian Warsaw Pact armory to be posing a severe threat to Western Europe. So at that time, there was a lot of it was correct. Where where my belief system changed completely was that at at that time I believed okay, um, Russia and the Warsaw Pact throw sorry pose a threat to the uh, democracy, of the the democracy and freedoms of the West. What I didn't understand was that the democracy and freedoms of the West were largely illusionary. And I was living, effectively, in what I'm going to describe now as a police state. But you couldn't actually see it. It had a veneer of respectability over the top of it. But the reality was that UK and the US, and really particularly within the European Union project, you were looking at an utter dictatorship. So now I, I believe yeah. I have a much more balanced opinion because I, I, my view on Russia has softened. Um, my view on my own country and the West in general was very much hardened. And I think we we now live in a despicable regime because democracy, as I say, is largely illusionary. We have vile things happening under the surface, everything from people being beaten up and killed in police cells to uh, children and babies stolen from their parents. But we stand on the platform of the world stage lecturing other countries on... You know how to how to conduct uh, law and order and democracy. It's outrageous.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. Obviously, Um, but I I was just wondering, was it not ever thus? I mean, I mean, you say so. Definitely, in the in the nineteen seventies, for example, we had Ted Heath as prime minister, um, and we know about some of the shenanigans he got up to on, on Morning Cloud. Uh, so, our political class and our system has been utterly corrupted, certainly well within our lifetimes. But do you think, do you think it goes back or how far back do you think this goes? Well, ultimately, it, it goes back a long
1: way. Um, if, we're, if we're using a loose expression, corruption within the political classes and the political system, I think the criminality and the corruption goes back a long way but I, I believe that if you, if you go back in time, uh, the corruption was within a certain element and there were good people who served as politicians and I think there were people serving as politicians who, who had um, correct values in truth, in facts and lies and morality. But now, I believe that, effectively, we, we are controlled by a... Um, it's a government of occupation. It's a criminal cabal is now running the country. Yeah. And the, the corruption is is all-encompassing. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. So, no, things were never perfect in the past, but I think we're into a new era now. And the reason that my my own view... Changed so quickly, was because um, very quickly when we began to report on simple things like fraud and corruption in Plymouth City Council or in other in in other cities across UK. That's that's where it started, fraud and corruption. But once we w- were putting out articles and uh, information, giving a lot of public talks. I I think over the years I've given about 360. Maybe closer to 400 public talks, talking about what's happening in the in the country. It was, it was during one of, the, or shortly after one of my talks, that I was approached by a woman. Um, what she actually said to me was that her, I think the little girl was about 10, her 10 year old daughter was stolen at gunpoint, in America by Neath Port Talbot Social Services. That's what she said to me on the phone. And of course that's an incredible claim and as I listen to her talking about this, half my brain is saying this cannot be true. She subsequently came to visit me in, in Plymouth, brought a, a wheelie suitcase full of court documents and I spent a couple of days going through those documents with her, at the end of which I was fully satisfied that every part of her story was correct. and. If I tell the story as quickly as possible, a little girl ended up in intense pain. It got so bad she couldn't go to school, but there was no remedy from the GP. There was no remedy from local hospitals. So the mother in turmoil uh, with a little girl who was in intense pain, um, when the mother... Uh, ha- tried to defend herself that the little girl wasn't capable of going to school. The local social services accused the mother of Munchausen by proxy, i.e., that she was attempting to get a uh, psychological thrill out of apologies, out of labelling her, out of labelling her um, uh, daughter as ill. And the mother eventually got so desperate, let me deal with my phone for I embarrass myself, um, the mother got so desperate um, that she eventually located a hospital in Florida um, that that dealt with stomach issues and the main site of the pain was, was connected to the stomach. So she flew the little girl to Florida, to this hospital. Uh, the grandfather, the lady's father, went with them uh, the girl was in hospital for a couple of days, and there was a diagnosis. Uh, the day before the little girl was due to be released, Neathport Talbot Social Services turned up with uh, an American policeman. The grandfather got a bit stroppy because they said, we're going to take the girl, and the American policeman did draw the gun. So that, uh, that part of the story, absolutely correct. The little girl was then flown back to the UK on a false passport. Um, She was put in a um, juvenile-type psychiatric facility where initially she was told her pain was imaginary. The diagnosis from the hospital was that the little girl had Zollinger's disease, which is multiple ulceration of the gut, intensely painful. And even when the mother convinced the local authority of that diagnosis, and they agreed with it to the extent that the girl was given appropriate medication for that medical complaint, the little girl was never given back to her mother. And that was the first story that came to me. I reported on it. I also did a talk in South Wales about this particular case. And... Some months later, Ian Crane, who ran at the time, um, for a number of years the Alternative View uh, Conferences, he gave me the opportunity to speak. I gave a talk about child stealing by the state, and that was the UK government and its agency stealing people's babies and children. And from the time I did that talk... My phone never stopped, my emails never stopped, and my life was never the same again because more and more largely mothers came forward telling me how their children had literally been stolen by the UK state. And this was my baptism in fire to understand that when we look out the window at the governments and the child protection agencies and the police, we are looking at a complete illusion uh, because the ultimate um, I call it the fuel of corruption in this country is the taking of children, the abuse and trafficking of children uh, either for pure profit or for control of individuals and just to finish, what do I mean by that? Well, if you want to control a politician, you can try bribes and money and women or men or drugs, whatever it is, Um, but they're all becoming very acceptable now. But what are you left with? Well, there's murder, which is a difficult one, or else there's getting involved with little children. And my firm belief is that the control system of politics in this country is paedophilia and the abuse of
0: children. We've, we've gone in deep there, Brian. I mean, we, ha- we haven't quite got as far as adrenochrome and ritual satanic abuse, but we're not far away well, from the, it. James, um, this,
1: this, this, is, this is my journey, right? My, my journey into waking up to what was going on went from fraud and corruption in Plymouth to the extent that when I and some other good people tried to expose it, we were threatened, we um, used hypodermic needles, put in flower baskets outside my house, a friend of mine had a fire set, it was the wrong house, they set a fire outside his neighbour, they got the wrong door. That was when we tried to expose fraud and corruption in Plymouth, but what followed our investigations into fraud and corruption went straight to the stealing and abuse of children and that theme has never gone away even though I've been quite quiet about it for several years that has been because I've been trying to help people embedded in the system and I'm going to say fairly shortly I'm going to be back on the the trail of this because this is
0: what runs the country. That's really interesting, and you've actually answered my question. I was going to ask you what it was that took you down the rabbit hole, and there it is, that incident with that woman. How well did you know Christopher Booker? um, I've
1: I've spoken to him a couple of times. I I never got the opportunity to actually sit down with him. I paid attention when he started to report some of these issues, Um, but that's the truth of it. I was never able to fully in, engage with him. Um, but what, what well, do I... It's, sorry,
0: go ahead. No, well, Christopher was, was, was kind of like my honorary dad. We used to have long... I mean, I, I love my dad who's still with us, uh, Christopher no longer is. Um, the, the, we, we used to have regular conversations, maybe at least once a week where we'd talk for a... Booker could never stop speaking on the phone. Um, so the conversations would go on, go on for hours and they'd range from you know, his family history and his schooling to the issues of the day. And, and I, he, he was kind of a mentor to me because he showed me that, that what was being covered in, in the, the mainstream news was not necessarily where the real stories were. And it's just very interesting. I mean, I think he was the best journalist of his generation, um, the, the one with the most integrity. And given given how mainstream he was, given that he he was the co-founder or the founder of of, of, of private eye, you know, he was he was very media establishment, wasn't he? In a, in a way, but his it's interesting to see where his interests lay, and 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 one of them was what he called the family courts. Yeah. He said the family court system was very opaque, and you could see that whenever he covered these issues about about. Custody being taken away from parents to, to councils or whatever, children being stolen effectively. There was the, 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 the system that, we, that you and I and Christopher have been brought up to trust as kind of the envy of the world, you know, this, this model of, of respectability and decency and, and Magna Carta and English common law, all, all, this, all this pabulum that gets, gets fed to us in, in columns by sort of conservative com- columnists. Telling us why we won the lottery and life being in Britain, and so Christopher was bumping up at the edges of that in the Sunday Telegraph, and he and, and he got away with reporting it. But it's clearly, I mean, you're right. It is it is the thing. Well, it's once it's... you understand that the, the economy is run on, or the or the the political system is run on on s- s- traffic, children, and compromat, you're, you're in there pretty deep. Well, yeah,
1: and, and let's, um, Christopher Booker did a really good job in, in the cases that he reported um, and he did, he did stick with the subject but he, he was one person and a lot of, of journalists, actually very interesting isn't it because you, you've just uh, written an article for conser- the Conservative woman talking about journalists not reporting things. Is that, that right? Yeah. So I, I'm going to say yeah. uh, he he didn't get any support from fellow journalists. In fact, there are a lot of journalists who spend their whole time poo-pooing the idea that that there are um, there are paedophile gangs who are taking children. But if 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 we do a, a simple little calculation, um, roughly sixty-five thousand children in care in UK. In fact, it could be a lot higher than that now. But I'm going to I'm going to take a figure of 65,000. For a child to be in care, they have got to have gone through at least one court system. And if you add up the amount of money that circulates around the court hearing to take the child, I'm just going to use one court. There could be several, but we'll say one. Um, If you add add up the amount of money that changes hands, it's about a quarter of a million. Because everybody is being paid. The social services are being paid. The uh, psychiatric um, experts that are asked to give an opinion on mum or on the children or the, or the psychologists who are going to give a, a report, they're all earning money, a lot of money. Uh, the Guardian ad litims um, from organisations like CAFCAS, ultimately they're earning money. So if you just put a handful value on one court case... Is a quarter of a million. So if you multiply the sixty-five thousand children in care by a quarter of a million each, that's before you get into long-term residential care. You are talking about a, a multi-billion-pound industry. That's before you've got a child that maybe's got additional problems, so um, autism, uh, severe autism, or special learning needs, whatever it is where um, private companies can be earning several thousand pounds a week for looking after those children. And children that are looked after are big bucks for a lot of people. That's before the children are taken out of those facilities and trafficked for pr- pr- prostitution or, or porn films or whatever they're going to do with them. So children as a commodity are
0: worth a fortune.
1: That's where it starts.
0: Yeah. And we are conditioned by the media and by TV programmes like drama series and things, probably The Bill and stuff, to think of... There are these children in abusive households. I mean, this is why I presume we get stories like Baby P in the media. That... There are these abusive households with these abusive parents and the benign and loving state removes these abused children from these households and puts them in the tender care of our matchless social system where they're put into loving homes. That's, that's the kind of narrative, isn't it?
1: That, that, that is absolutely the narrative. Now, are there children who are abused and badly treated in the family home? Of course there are. Um, But where the system is something completely different is that if we examine what the so-called child care system is, we find we're dealing with a monster. And um, if I if I just mention a couple of other things, uh, how do they get the children? Well, of course, they take the children through the family court system. And what's special about the family court system? There is no jury present. There is simply a judge. In a room which forms effectively a star chamber. Um, On rare occasions one or two members of the press could be allowed in but normally there's no jury and there's no press and if you want to understand what goes on in these courts the only way you can get in is to act as a Mackenzie friend for the parents and in in my early days in this subject when I was trying to uh, help Parents and learn, I did indeed go into these courts. And what I witnessed was just horrific because all sorts of accusations could be thrown at, uh, at the parents by child protection, social services. You know, the mother is, is, uh, has got mental health problems, the mother is anxious, the mother is this, the mother is that. And then the onus is on the mother, sometimes the father, to prove their innocence in a secret court. And they, they start out on a hiding to nothing because the state uh, will have a number of people ranged against them. They will have the local social services team. They will have the um, psychiatric or, or um, psychology team acting on behalf of the court and social services. They will have the CAFCAS team Uh, They will have the guardian ad litem, who is an appointed um, legal, uh, uh, an appointed solicitor who's supposed to have the child's best interests at heart. All of those people are ranged against the mother and father. Most of them won't have a bean to rub together in order to get their own legal defence. And even if they do get a legal defence, those people are operating within a secret court. And so we shouldn't be surprised that in case after case, the ruling of the court is that they're going to take the children. Because the moment they take the children, the money starts to circulate.
0: Wow. Do you know what? I got a taste, just a hint of, just the, a taste of the of the very tip of this scary system, um, to mix my metaphors. that. When I was, when my children were younger, we used to live in um, in Camberwell, and every now and again, as you know, children they get they get bumps or they get you know the, they fall over or one child throws something at another and hits it in the head or, or or whatever or they get their arm twisted maybe the arm comes out of their out of their socket, and I remember when you took your children in to casualty the the zeal with which you were questioned by the the doctors and nurses about the the injury and how it was sustained and it was clear that they were angling to be able to pin this on you the parent mm-hmm. and i thought if this is what they try and do with articulate middle class parents i imagine they'd do it Tenfold with with people who are less articulate well, and probably would have less money to back themselves.
1: The the answer to that is is one. You said Camberwell, did you? Yeah. Um, and my my response to that is that Camberwell and the London in in inner boroughs have always been exceptionally dangerous uh, territory for this sort of thing going on. But yes, you're absolutely right. Um, you would have been severely questioned. And I think that comes about for two reasons. One is that people within the NHS, the nurses and doctors, would have been indoctrinated with the belief, question the parents, um, and they would have been indoctrinated against the parents, and for the idea that child protection services are squeaky clean and protect children. Whereas I fully believe the reverse re, reverse is true, and many cases, uh, including cases that have been reported in the in the legacy press over the years, um, have started with very simple things um, that happened. The child fell down the stairs or did something, and then that was turned around and used against the children. I have an individual, I. I'm not allowed even to say that sex of the individual that's in contact with it at the moment. Um, Newborn babies taken from that family within days of birth with no evidence of uh, harm or potential harm against those babies at all. They've already been taken into care in inverted commas Um, where the parents are only allowed to visit them as they're they're now just over a year old. The parents are only allowed to visit them uh, three times a week. And the mother wasn't allowed to breastfeed her own babies because Child Protection Services deemed that this wasn't necessary. And of course, what happens to the parents is pure mental torture, particularly the mothers, because the baby or the young children are taken away and then she is only allowed to meet those children in highly in controlled environments where sometimes the mother is not allowed to even hug the child or the children and she's not allowed to say that she loves them when when i learned and... i just when i when i learned right. from going into the courts and seeing this array of people Making utterly false accusations against the parents, I was stunned. But in one particular court hearing, where I was alongside parents, mum and dad, the local authority uh, claimed that I had personally tried to break into a a contact centre, one of these contact centres in South Wales, and on the day on the day in question. I was actually at the u k column uh, studio in Plymouth, and I subsequently got six witness statements of people to say that when this claim or well, the claim that I'd tried to break in had been made, I was in Plymouth, hundred plus miles away and in the next court hearing when my statements were presented to the judge, he looked up, he grinned, and he said, "Oh, Mr. Gerrish." I, I rather think there's been a mistake made, and I said to him, "Well, this is not a mistake. This is perjury." No, 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 Mr. Gerrish. I, I, I think I rather think that the local authority has made a mistake. And when I pushed the point a bit, and remember that I was only there as a Mackenzie friend, he then said to me, uh, "Mr. M- Mr. Gerrish, let me tell you this: if you dare to report." any of the proceedings that have taken place in this family court, I will put you in prison. And that really, for me, was the stage at which I understood what was, was going on. But I've, I've, I'm contacted, I'm now, strangely, over the last few months, I'm being contacted again by parents who've had their children literally stolen by the British state, And this is the British state that has the audacity to stand up on the world stage, point a finger at the Russians, for example, and say, oh, those nasty Russians and nasty Mr. Putin is stealing the children, when the facts are that this country, via the government, is running a child protection racket. And if people want a, another example which they should pay attention it was only a couple of years ago that it was in the national press in this country that over 400 unaccompanied syrian children had disappeared out of the children that had come into the country it was reported 400 had been disappeared had disappeared there was no inquiry there was no police investigation. There were no reports. There was no discussion in Parliament. We just simply said, oh, well, we've lost 400 of them.
0: I, <laughs> I mean, that opens up a whole other can of worms, doesn't it, about yeah. disaster capitalism and about the bigger picture, about what, why wars take take place. And we know, you and I know, at least, that one of the reasons that well America basically starts wars in places like Syria is so that they can traffic children
1: well, with, well with, and, with and, and of course and take, and take whatever they can get their hands on so raw material, materials or oil or um, you know whatever the natural resources of a country
0: uh, yeah that's absolutely right um, do you do you do you know how, how many judges are there in the family court system? I, that's a very good question. I don't actually know. I don't. I don't know. But it it would seem to me unlikely that they are not aware exactly what's going on and how the system works. These, these oh, distinguished I, I, judges. I,
1: I'm sure they know exactly what's going on. What I will accept is. Uh, From what what I have seen, uh, yes, there are some cases where a judge in the family court system seems to make a fair and reasonable decision, but it is also clear that there are people within the family court system who are making unbelievably unfair and cruel decisions to deprive people of their children, and I think without question the... I'll call them the good judges, are so fearful of their own positions that they can't speak out about what's happening in the wider sense. And we shouldn't be surprised because, of course, that's going on in in government. There are plenty of good people in government but they're simply frightened and won't speak out. It's the same in the NHS. So, yep, there are good judges um, but we're not seeing them speak out, because if they were to speak out on this matter, they wouldn't be judges for very much longer.
0: No, or, or they wouldn't even be alive, probably. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's extraordinary, isn't it? That the, I don't know whether... Be, well, I mean, as an ex-military man, you probably would have felt the same. I. I sort of grew up thinking that the... British establishment was, was something that one might like to join one day and that it would be nice to have a, a title, it would be nice to be Sir James Pole, or maybe even in, in, in the Nords, yeah. and that all these pucker characters who'd, who'd been to the right schools and the, and the right universities and, and demonstrated themselves to be the, the sort of people who ought to be running society uh, because, they, you know, because of their probity and their, their intelligence and, and, and so on Um, I, I, I believed in this system and even now, even knowing what I do now, it, I find it almost beyond belief that say your average judge in the family courts, who's been to Eton and Winchester and all these smart schools and then gone on to Oxford or Cambridge and got their law degree and done their time in, in the, you know, as a barrister and eventually been made a judge. And these people, these pillars of society, are essentially key figures in a child trafficking industry. And they must know it's a child trafficking industry, and they know what's going to happen to those children. They're going to be, at best, treated like prostitutes, at worst, tortured and murdered for adrenochrome and what else
1: yeah I, it 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 is a difficult concept to get your head around i i'm going to say my head began to accept it some years ago and and so i i don't look at the establishment with any form of um loving feeling um i regard the establishment as utterly corrupt and um just look at the people who who, who we've got in the system um you know, we go back to Tony Blair, the man who said, uh, you know, I'm a pretty straight, he said publicly, I'm a pretty straight sort of guy when he was under pressure in the early days. And then he's happy for a war to take place on a bunch of lies. We had Cameron coming in and uh, what was going on at that time, Libya more bloodshed on the base of a pack of lies to do with the uh with to do with the establishment and uh boris johnson well i mean you know i look at boris johnson let's say betrayed his first family moved on to a new family um a lot of stories about him when he's in his mayor of london position and then the next minute he from the reports i see is one of the key individuals that made sure that a peace deal in Ukraine was not going to happen and a war was going to happen. And he, he's still warmongering for that violence to continue. These are despicable people. They, they, they. Uh, pretend to give the illusion that they're upstanding and that they're more intelligent than the rest of us, and, and they've got all the right values because they went to the right schools. But the reality is that they these are disgusting people. And and
0: Brian, the op- these are my op- these <laughs> are my old university mates. You're talking about. I, I won't hear them. a word said against them.
1: <laughs> a lot of them. I'm af- I'm afraid. To say, yeah, a lot of them. Um, we can talk well I didn't go to a public school I went to a grammar school but what I found interesting is that when when I got to the Naval College at Dartmouth um, overwhelmingly Mm -hmm. most of the people had come from public schools and when I got to know those blokes better there were quite a few of them that began to tell me stories about their school which in the first instant would suggest that they didn't entirely enjoy it but it was quite clear that some of them had had bad experiences. Now, I'm talking about sexual experiences within the confines of a boarding school. And so, yeah, you know, very early on, I began to, you know, have to learn about what went on in, in public schools. They're not all, of course, they're not all bad. The staff are not all bad, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what you generally find. Is this business that when wrongdoing takes place, the initial reaction is not to speak out and get it dealt with; it's to cover it up, manage reputations, and keep your own job. Because if if you're a whistleblower, you're going to lose your job. So, you know, yes. I, I I would have to say, and I can understand how this would be hard on on you, but. I learnt in the early days that public schools were not the squeaky clean organisations they like to pretend they are.
0: It's weird, um, because, as, as you say, I went through this system. Yeah, you know, I went to a, a prep school, um, some, which we called bits, Um <laughs> and it was it was pretty pretty Spartan and with a pretty a pretty scary regime, and you know you'd get beaten for trivial things. And there was a bit of, there was a bit of, you know, gay activity among the boys. But, but I, I mean, and there was a predatory music teacher um, who felt me up in my piano lessons or tried to. But, but that was as far as it went. And then I think about my time at Morven, you know, sort of classic English uh, provincial public school. Um, where C.S. Lewis and Alistair Crowley both went um, and Jeremy Paxman and I, um, nothing of that kind that I, that I saw um, so it, it, it's interesting isn't it are, depending on where you, where you were at, at a particular time your experiences of the public school system could be very very different but going to, on to Boris and, and, and Dave who I knew Wellish uh, uh, at Oxford you know I used used to smoke joints with Dave in my rooms in Peckwater Quad and stuff Uh, I mean I was a naive naive young man you know from the provinces at that time I wasn't as sophisticated as the Etonians certainly I wasn't as worldly wise but it's still I, I still find it odd to think that the people that I sort of broke bread with and hung out with and sort of went to Cocktail parties on, in the master's garden and stuff—that these could become the creatures that they've become. Do you think that do, do you think that the, the 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 political class are sort of selected very early on? Were they corrupt well, then? Do you think intellectually, morally, or, or did that happen later on?
1: Well, I, I think the important thing to start with is children are children, aren't they? And while some children might be born as you know a very 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 uh, tiny percentage might be born as a psychopath or a sociopath children are just children and then it's what what happens to them how they're brought up uh, what morality they're ingrained with so that's the that's the key thing um but interestingly enough the, the politician i need has gone out of my head but uh, a politician close to david cameron said when cameron had had, had just become Prime Minister. Oh, this is fascinating because because when he was much younger, in his very early days when he was just a little boy, we used to call him prime minister. that That was reported in national press. It's right? a little anecdotal story, but just fascinating. And what do I believe? I, I believe that our politicians are all selected. they're chosen for the for the post. But yeah, there are clearly some of them that are are being tracked through a system from the earliest days. Um, And uh, Cameron, I think, was certainly one of those.
0: Yes. Who's doing the tracking? Well, this is...
1: uh, Who are these shadowy people? Well, this is a very interesting question. For me, um, the people who have always got the power are the people who control the most money. So I mean, if we look at how the Conservative Party functions, it can only function through the Conservative Party machinery, and therefore we've got to look at the people that fund the Conservative Party. And when we do that, of course, we very quickly can come across a big uh, can of worms. In the in recent years, a large amount of money's come into the Conservative Party via Russians. Who have been thrown out of their own country for corrupt practices, um, and they've then pumped money into into the Conservative Party,
0: right?
1: Are we talking we everything, here? James? Everything I'm reading off here, people. If they go and just do a little bit of research, uh, funding for the Conservative Party, Russian money—you'll find you'll find it all in the press. It's all an open secret. But if you want to control the politician, Uh, Who's going to control the politician? Well, the party machinery is going to do it, but also, that's what the whip system is for. Listen to what the whips say about their own job. They are there in order to whip the MPs into line with their voting. And what what do the whips do? They keep little black books. This again has all been reported, uh, yeah. and in the black books, they keep all the dirty little secrets. So if you, if you yes. as a power broker, want to control an MP, what you need is all the de- dirty little secrets. And that means that you want defectives. You want people who've got not only a few perversions, they've got perversions which are still serious enough to get them into deep trouble should those things become public. Now, now we've had politicians that have been filmed in rooms with rent boys telling them to go out and get some more, you know, drugs. We won't Mm -hmm. mention the politician, but that was the story. He was later removed from his position as a politician. But nothing really happened to that particular individual. So now we've got a problem, you know, in the early days, if you committed adultery as an upstanding member of Parliament or certainly the House of Lords, this could be a big problem. Um, Adultery, well, adultery doesn't even feature now. Now you you can be doing all sorts of things with each and any sex and drugs can be involved and you can still get away with your reputation as a politician so why yes. do you need defective people so that they can be controlled who controls them the people who control the parties and those are the people who can fund the parties
0: yes i always like little new things that i've never thought of before and that thing you mentioned about the russian oligarchs sort of who, who were too corrupt even for even for russia <laughs> which which says something i think yeah um well, So these are the people who are, of course, sold sold to us in the Western media as these victims. I mean, they're they're sold as victims of of the Putin regime and that they probably tried to speak out against the wickedness of, and and they were sent into exile. But in fact, they are the kind of the the dregs of, of the Russian oligarchy.
1: Well, yeah, it's a fascinating discussion. I mean, sometimes at the moment, because because of the way we're reporting Ukraine, there's been one or two people say what the UK calls pro-Russian. Well, in trying to really talk about what's what's been happening in Ukraine, it's not so much being pro-Russian as to just be reporting what's factually correct. But is Putin squeaky clean? I don't think so. But it's remarkable some of the things that he's done because if he was part of the system he's turned against the world rules-based order to an extent that they want him gone i mean america uk uh, the european union has openly declared that they want regime change in russia they don't just want uh, want the war in ukraine stopped in ukraine's favor they want regime change and why do they want to get rid of putin Because he is challenging a lot of the wicked stuff that's going on in the West. And then if you just jump back a bit and, and say, well, it's quite incredible that Putin turned against these oligarchs. And one of the things that he was saying at the time is that these people are betraying Russia. They're selling off our infrastructure. They are, they're hollowing out our natural resources. they got no interest in Russia. And eventually, when he said, this is going to stop, and some of them uh, thought they were powerful enough to say, go away, they either found themselves in prison or
0: booted out of the country. And where did a lot of these people come? London. You've reminded me, actually, of another thing that I discovered recently, via Matthew Errett, um, talking of the German warfare podcast, which he explained what it was that happened in the post soviet era that this was orchestrated i think almost inevitably by kissinger and the plan was to divide russia into a series of small states which the better to divide and rule it each of which was to be given to an oligarch that the the western deep state you know, the central bankers etc control. controlled so that would make sense so what so what Putin has done is have a purge of Kissinger's oligarchs who came here, and then exerted their, well, advanced the interests of the of of the the new world order by funding the conservative party. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, in, in, we're, we're we're talking in handfuls and keeping it simple, but yeah, this is this is this is the reality of it, and and and. <laughs> I, I still go back and read some of the reports about this Russian funding of the Conservative Party and, and oh, we, sh- we shouldn't worry about it. They're all f- fine people. Really? Who are they? I mean, at one stage, I think I'm allowed to say Alex Thompson, who does a lot of work with the UK column, but in his previous role at GCHQ, these were the type of people that that agency would be monitoring because they regarded them as dangerous international criminals, and then suddenly yeah. we've got them mixing directly with the political masters of this country. How, how can that possibly be? It can only be if the real agenda for the so-called rules-based international order is not is not being created within national governments. It's being um, it's being created within the supranational system um, outside of the nation state. And if you look at America at yeah. the moment, who is running America? It, it, it's surely madness to say a, a, a senile, incompetent Biden is running America. He's just the, he's just the floppy puppet. Who, who's pulling his strings? Well, the security services. And and rogue elements of of you know like uh, Blinken and Victoria Newland, rogue elements of of the um, American political elite.
0: So yeah. yeah, yeah. I I know from listening to some of your other podcasts that you've reached the conclusion I have, which is that ultimately the person running the show is the devil uh and that he's not a metaphorical figure that he is he is real and he's calling the shots what, with with god's permission um uh, when did you when did were you always a, a believing christian
1: the honest answer to that is with a smile on my face i was sort of what, what was the film three weddings and a funeral i can't remember the title of that four film. Weddings, was, you four, four weddings yeah so yeah he's a luciferian (laughs) i was a person that i came from a family that that had some pretty strong ties with probably the baptist church and the methodist church Um, and as a as a youngster i was taken to church but i never had a a very strong pull into it Um, but i'm going to say i sensed something because I, I always had a feeling that it wasn't something, or well, there were certain elements of, of the uh, Christian story that you were not going to mock lightly. It's difficult for me to explain that, but it, there was a reverence that I always felt was required in certain areas. Um, the time that uh, I really started to think was uh, actually in the early days when I was dealing with the fraud and corruption in Plymouth and I had some really unpleasant uh, stuff happening, I also got some things happening which I found very difficult to e- explain. Anything from amazing coincidences, which could be good or bad, um, to um, uh, phone calls coming through so that I could be taking 10 or 11 uh, phone calls on my mobile phone, just one after the other, finished one call, the next one came in, with people telling me stuff. And um, uh, 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 then eventually, um, when I was seeking answers about what was going on, because I was finding it so bizarre, um, I I discovered uh, the organisation Common Purpose, which calls itself a charity setting up future leaders. But in fact, its job is indoctrinating future leaders in its own largely woke belief system. Um, But I'd found this organisation buried in Plymouth and many other cities across the UK. And I'm going to say that whenever I went researching it, I always felt a darkness about it. it. It was always got something about it that you felt was very dark. And i mentioned this to a friend and the friend said to me well of course brian you know it's a spiritual battle and i said what do you mean and he said well do you know anything about the bible and i said not a lot and he said well that's a bit of a problem but um essentially there's a spiritual battle going on and to cut a long story short uh, what happened uh, one uh, weekend was i'd been away with my wife uh, She'd stayed on with the friends that we'd been to see. I came back to my house and somebody pushed an envelope through the door. And when I opened it, there were two magazines. One of them uh, said the EU, the Fourth Reich. And the other one had a man's head in a sniper rifle sight. And the head, he- header was the battle for our minds. And I sat down and read these two magazines they were biblically based Um, but by I think it was about half three in the morning maybe quarter to four I just found the accuracy of what they were talking about incredible so they they were almost like military reports the language was very concise it was very measured and targeted but there there were a large number of biblical references and this was really the start of me then beginning to look in this direction myself. Where did it lead me? Well, it led me to an understanding that the horrors going on around us, yeah, are manifested by men and women in a political uh, field or in in other venues. Um, but ultimately, there's there's a much more powerful spiritual hand which is stirring the pot to to make this happen and when we start to understand that the real battle is spiritual not political um, this is where we can really start to gain some leverage and understanding on what we should be doing to fight the wickedness going on and uh, uh, I, I, I found it fascinating that when I began to have an appreciation for the spiritual battle Um, I was giving a lot of these public talks and I might mention God from the stage or I might mention a little bit about end times and I could get quite a hostile response from the audience. So I learnt to deliver my talk from the stage. But afterwards, I would find people came up to me and would say, Brian, do you think there's more to this than men and politics? And I would always say, Of course, it's spiritual. And then you could talk to people. What is really encouraging now is there is almost no nowhere that the UK column goes. There's nobody we speak to who doesn't at some stage say, the world's gone mad, but I sense there's something else. And the moment they say that, I find you can start to have a very friendly relaxed conversation about spiritual things and the nice thing is it doesn't matter whether they're a christian or uh, a muslim or whatever they are they can they can appreciate that there's something else going on uh, above men and politics as i describe it and
0: um yes it's interesting to... you say that about about your experience mentioning the the, the G word, God, yeah. or, or whatever in your early talks, because I I can't help myself. I'm I'm very upfront about you know what you see is what you get. So I'll always bring bring God and Jesus into my in, in, into my talks in a, in a kind of I hope not not a kind of cringy way. Um, well, it, even if it is, I don't care. Um, that's the deal. And I find that the response is always really positive. And I in fact what I find is that you get this sort of frisson of, of sort of excitement and joy, I would say, in in the crowd. When you when you talk about the spiritual dimension, it's like people are I notice this a lot with the people that, that, that I, I I talk to at at festivals and, and, and things like that. They have a light in their they have a radiance which you don't see in normal people, in normal And they can
1: be happy, it, it's, it, but they it's, can be laughing and joking, they can be happy. Even in the bad times.
0: But it, yeah. There's that, but it's also this, this kind of awareness that, that, that they have protection. I was wondering whether you, you, you've, you felt that. Are you, are you familiar well, I, with, with Psalm 1, sorry, um, with... which is appropriate? Psalm, Psalm number 1, which is very appropriate. It's well, the one that is uh, blessed is that the man that hath not walked in the council of the ungodly, nor stood in the way of sinners. Um, and uh, it goes, he shall be like a tree planted by the waterside that will bring forth his fruit in in due season. His leaf also shall not wither and look whatsoever he doeth, it shall prosper. Do you, do you not feel that that you've got this kind well, of protection? Well, I... I, I I do feel that. Um, Quite often people
1: will say to me, or Mike or other members of the UK Column team, you know, don't you get a bit fearful? And actually, no, I don't feel fearful at all. Um, And that's a huge advantage because you can get on with fighting the battle without worrying. Many people, it seems to me, who don't have any proper faith, um, they, they might have the right things inside them, but... But they're lost because they they don't they can't look anywhere else for strength and protection um and i'm going to say on my little journey um a lot of people talk about waking up and it's a very interesting expression but but i went through a period of strange coincidences and things happening Um, but quite often there was a biblical connection somebody would send me a little verse from the bible so i might be down i might be thinking i'm not sure how to handle this my phone would go beep beep and when i opened it somebody just sent me a little verse from the bible very often that answered the concern in my head so that was very positive but then that was followed by me going through a period of experiencing some pretty dark stuff some of which is very difficult to talk about and also very difficult to understand but on one occasion when i was i'd gone to visit uh, a flat which i'd been to before um, knew the people living in it very well uh, but as i walked over the threshold it was as though something jumped on me and i felt incredibly unwell and i know that i must have reacted badly because i think my wife thought i was going to have a heart attack or something um but over the course of the weekend in that particular location, um, it was as though something, you know, was uh, oppressing me. And uh, yeah. if later, when I, I started to rationalise this, it was as though in the beginning I uh, something was saying to me, I'll teach you what the light is about. And that led me down uh, the path of... Of proper light, with God and Jesus Christ, and then, when I'd got a bit of understanding as as to what that may well mean, I was shown. I'll give you a taste of what the dark side is, and and that was pretty potent. Um, I can I share this story? I think I probably can. But I, I in dealing with the child abuse issue, I was then exposed to child abuse cases in which uh, there was a satanic element. And if anybody in your audience thinks that uh, satanic ritual abuse is is fantasy and nonsense, then you've got a lot to learn. Um, But when I dealt with some of the, uh, as they were, adults that had been through this type of stuff, um, I found that a knowledge and understanding and a belief in God and Jesus Christ gave you a particular strength when you were dealing with them because it was clear that some of them at least still had very dark things with them. Um, So, James, I'm going to say to you, I I smile at myself as as I'm talking about this stuff because if if 30-odd years ago you'd have said, Brian, in 2023 you will be talking openly about spiritual battles and the fact that people need to understand the dark side's real and you need to be very careful if you're playing around with it but that's where my life journey has, has taken me and I'll, I'll just add that when I had a bit of a growing understanding about this aspect on one occasion I was invited to give a talk, a talk in Truro Baptist Church and i I felt very reluctant to do this because I thought who who was I to go into a church and talk to a an audience, uh, but I was persuaded by a certain gentlemen to do it, and I gave a talk about what was happening in the country, but I tried to balance the politics with political uh, sorry balance the politics with appropriate quotes and passages from the bible and at the end of the evening, um, there'd probably been about 35 people, maybe maybe 40, so not huge. But at the end of the evening, I had a cluster of people around me, and they were just fascinated. They asked me more and more questions. And one uh, guy, a very big farmhand, a huge man, he said to me, Brian, all the things you've talked about all happening here in Cornwall so I talked about fraud and corruption and children and dark arts and he said it's all happening around us and that was quite a big boost for me because it 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 just said uh, if necessary I could go and speak to that sort of audience and hold my own Uh, but the other one that goes with it and for me this is very important is that um, several years ago, I was invited to give a talk in birmingham central mosque and I had met the then chairman of the mosque uh, mohammed nazim and uh he, he i'd met him at a very a strange little meeting of people um uh, just outside birmingham we'd gone to talk about the money supply system um but and and it was it was stays Friday and Saturday night and it was on the Friday night there have been several very interesting speakers um, including James Stuart Gibb if that name means anything to you he's a well he's not alive anymore but he was a Scotsman who'd written some very interesting books about money supply system and the decline of the West. Uh, Lemming Folk comes to my mind immediately that's one of his books. Um, but um, the the talks had been on the money supply system and then the, the man chairing it said oh well this is very strange we've finished a bit early we've still got 20 minutes does anybody want to speak about anything else? and so I said I'll speak about Common Purpose so I gave a talk about this political charity Common Purpose and what it was doing and at the end a gentleman came up to me and that was um, Dr. Mohamed Um He asked if he could talk to me in private. We went in a little room. And he said to me, Brian, you're talking about all these things, nasty things happening. But you're white and you're professional and you live in the south of the country. These things are happening to Muslims. And we thought it was racial prejudice. But it's happening to you. And I said, well, at the end of the day, we're all targeted and we need to understand this and that initial conversation we developed a little bit of a friendship and a a professional relationship and we swapped information and eventually he gave me the opportunity to speak in birmingham central mosque and i gave a talk about the breakdown of society the deliberate breakdown of society in uk i warned the assembled of course, it was a mosque, so I was talking to men in the first instant. But I warned them that the Muslims were going to be heavily targeted, as I believe is, is obvious with certain things that have gone on in the UK. But if we look at what's happening worldwide, proper Muslims, not politicised Muslims, proper Muslims, heavily targeted. So I, I talked about what was happening. I talked about the attack on children, morality... Uh, the rise of criminality. And um, it was a very interesting venue um, at that time. Um, special Branch or the intelligence services always had at least one liaison officer in all the major mosques in in UK. They're pretty stupid people because they always wear the same shoes. They always wear the same um, can I be naughty and say public school black smart leather shoes? So it was pretty easy. Oh, I know, to... Oxfords. <laughs> yeah, Oxfords, thank you. Yeah, so, so they were pretty easy to spot. Uh, but I got a fascinating response from the audience because they were very curious as to why I'd taken the trouble to come and see them. And I said, I've come here to warn you. And when I left the main hall, what I discovered was that the, the talk had been broadcast on a public address system into the very large foyer area. And the foyer area was full of the women and children. So they had heard my talk, but they'd been outside the main hall. And then what happened, I was surrounded by women asking me lots of questions about what I talked about and why I was there. I probably spent two hours talking to the women And when finally I said, it's time to go, I walked out into the car park and a group of young men followed me. There must have been about 15 of them. And I wasn't too too sure what was coming. But when I got to my car, they said to me, we can't believe you came. We can't believe what you said. And then they started to ask me more questions. And I spent about an hour and a half talking to these young people in the car park. Now what I want to come to is that is that people need to understand that w- when it comes to belief systems, uh, there are many people within the Muslim community who realize that their religion has been captured by something deeply unpleasant and political, but they find it very hard to to fight back against it. Uh, but what do they know? What they know? Is about the spiritual battle because invariably the imams are talking about a spiritual battle. So for the imams, they're not talking about a demonic world, they're talking about the jinn. Um, but in my view, out of a major, if we look at major religious communities in the UK, the people who are best informed about the demonic battle are actually the true Muslims. While we have Christians utterly abandoned by uh, their their vicars and the Church of England, uh, who are lambs to the slaughter because they are not being taught about what's really happening.
0: Yes, um, I suppose you're making in a, in a gentler and more thoughtful way the point that <laughs> Andrew Tate makes about why he why he chose Islam rather than Christianity. Um, I, I I don't I I don't agree with his rationale, but I think I think the point you raise is very interesting, and I've, I've noticed uh, in 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 my chat channels there is a division between those who who buy into the the idea that, that that the Muslims are out to destroy us, which I mean some of them are obviously you know the the the, the political Muslims undoubtedly are, are there to kind of complete screw us over, and we are disgusting Kufar and they hate us and they, want, and, they, and they want, you know, whatever but I do get the impression that I share it with you that this is not a battle between us and Muslims and whoever else, this is a battle between us all Jews, Christians Muslims, Hindus yeah. and the Luciferians the, the, it, and it, the, it's the, yeah. the, the, the satanic that, that it's, it, it's, it's, it's Satan against. versus the rest of us
1: yeah, it's a battle against evil. This this is the yeah, this exactly. is the leveling thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, t- just wanted to pick you up because be, I, I I can't I can't talk to you without not talking a bit about common purpose because that was the first kind of thing that I became aware of you through. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you, Brian, I remember. This is how much the newspapers have changed. I mean, I think the, the newspapers were always in the hands of the forces of darkness, but, to, but, but they, they were less obvious about it. There was a degree of leeway before. And I remember, I can't remember which editor it was, but there was a Mail on Sunday editor who was very um, preoccupied with Common Purpose yes. and was it very was Paul, keen for Paul me to Daker. write about it. Paul Dacre was the man. Paul Dacre... Ah, well, wrote, so it wasn't him I'm thinking of, but, but 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 Paul too. Right, that's good.
1: Well, it was Paul Dacre who was responsible for, for the uh, mail. It came out on a Saturday morning, uh, printing uh, ten full pages on what Common Purpose was up to. And the reason he did that is because sometime earlier, when he was being utterly shafted... Uh, via the early, um, I've, I've forgotten the name of the organisation, but what, when when we were seeing the uh, revised attempts to take control of the uh, the press, um, and Full Fact had been set up and all those all those agencies, I'd written to him after he'd been grilled at one of the sessions and said, "Do you realise that a lot of the people that are are now." Pressing for censorship of the press and giving you a hard time are connected with Common Purpose, and I sent him a little docket, a docket of information about Common Purpose. And am I allowed to leave my chair for ten seconds? Is that acceptable? Yes, you certainly can. Because because I, I do it all the time I, to do to it. I'm going to reach pessimism. over to my wall. Hold on a minute. <laughs> So this, this is an evidence-based discussion because I've just taken off my wall the letter that Paul Dacre sent to me thanking me for the information. That, that's his signature. It's dated the 14th of February 2012 and it says, Dear Mr Gerrish, thank you so much for sending me a, sending me a copy of your paper containing the article on the Media Standards Trust. That's the organisation I couldn't remember just now. I read the article with great, in italics, great interest. It went quiet for for several months, and then one Saturday morning, I could not believe it when I saw the papers, uh, that the front page of the mail was about common purpose. And when I opened it, it went on page after page after page. The Mail reported on it. The Telegraph reported on it. To a lesser extent, but still major coverage. The Times reported on it. The Sun reported on it. And I think the Mirror had a little bit. And I was later to meet one of the male journalists who'd been involved in producing that exposure. Um, he's a very nice guy. I'm still in contact with him. But I said at the time, hmm, it's a bit of bit sad that the UK column didn't get a mention and he looked at me and smiled and he said but Brian you know how it is but if you remember all of that exposure of common purpose that came as a result of research from the UK column and the fact that I wrote to Paul Dacre personally that's why I keep
0: that that letter doesn't that doesn't that raise some interesting um questions though Paul Dacre The guy who, famously, famously good editor, sort of set the tone of the mail for a very long time uh, on every story, how was he unaware of common purpose? This this is something that puzzles me endlessly.
1: Well, no, because let's be fair to him, I was completely unaware of common purpose in the beginning. It was only that when I was looking at fraud and corruption in Plymouth, a man I knew as a yeah a very good acquaintance said to me well actually everywhere you look and there's trouble going on there's this organization called common purpose and i said what what nurse that and he said well that's where the puzzle starts it's a really weird organization and i went to start researching it and and i find a charity that's creating future leaders it's going to break down silos it's going to change the world and it's operating, but I couldn't see where it was operating. And at the time, I, I was a member of the board of the Chamber of Commerce in, in Plymouth. And then one day, somebody said something, and I thought, oh, you were involved in it. And I then, I then discovered around me, a whole lot of people were common purpose graduates, as they, they, they're called but they don't declare themselves so you've got like a little secret network of people working. Well eventually, a very kind guy um, hoovered up a load of data from Common Purpose because if you were a a qualified Common Purpose graduate, um, you, you were allowed to access their database to find other Common Purpose graduates. So you're based in Plymouth, you could go and search as to who was Common Purpose trained in Sheffield or London. And one of the Common Purpose people, who was not very enamoured with the training, they'd done the training, but they didn't get much out of it, was kind enough to say, you know, do you, you want to see who's who in Common Purpose? And that's how we, we got the information. That information is still available on a, a funny little website called cpexposed.com. There's actually a database. And when you look at the database, it was incredible because having never heard of Common Purpose, they were everywhere. They were in the police, they were in the NHS, they were in schools, they were in the judicial system, they were in the BBC, all undeclared. And David Cameron is fascinating because David Cameron was absolutely involved with Common Purpose to the extent that he later went on to promote common purpose expanding in India. He joined common purpose events in India, whilst at the same time Eric Pickles, who was the community's Minister, was advising publicly, reported in the press, that local authorities should not, quote, waste their money on common purpose, unquote. So this, this is when we began to see a secretive charity operating, which was taking people, recruiting people to become graduates, and then those individuals appeared to be working within their own organisations with goals that suited common purpose agenda, not necessarily the
0: natural goals of their own organisations. and. What this did is, you find out about the people who was, who founded it? I, what is Julia Middleton was it? Well, Julia,
1: Julia Middleton was the um uh, was the key founder and chief executive in the initial stages. Um but whenever you looked at uh, at, uh, at any of the her individual, sorry, if you ever looked at any of her early statements on how common purpose was formed, the only thing you could read was that she'd originally been in uh, the States. Now, she's an internationalist anyway, because although she was born in UK, she went off to a French or a Swiss finishing school, and then she worked for the um, Work Foundation. So she sort of went through the system and then into, we'll call it, um, quasi-non-governmental organisation charity land, But she said in her own words that she'd been in America, she had heard things and thought it was a good idea. She came back and she formed Common Purpose with half a million pounds, as you do, you get the odd half a million. Um, But it was quickly apparent to us, because you could see the evidence for it and she talked about it, that the funding had come from a collection of banks. She never declared who the full spectrum were, but the major bank was Deutsche Bank. And for a long time, Common Purpose would hold its board meetings within the confines of the Deutsche Bank itself in London. So it was the banking industry that formed Common Purpose. She was the spokesperson. I don't think she's very bright. I'm I'm not saying that to sort of be, you know, what's it? I generally do not believe Julia Middleton is very bright. I think she was chosen for the job. If you ask me where I believe she was operating in the UK, I think she was operating in Chicago. And I think that the common purpose idea is closely linked to the Common Cause initiative, which was unleashed in the United States and the powerhouse behind that was later to become the Chicago powerhouse behind Obama.
0: Who, what, um, who's that?
1: Well if if you follow Obama you'll find that he's heavily connected with uh, the regime that's involved with social engineering um, based, I'll call them the mob in Chicago. Yeah. Um, Mark Anderson is is very well up on the background to this because very often he's speaking about the fact that from, from the core in Chicago is, the, is one of the major driving forces for the creation of the global system of mayors and this of course is, is where we're breaking down the nation state by creating a global system of city-states where one man or woman, the mayor, is is going to be the overriding uh, person in, in charge of those cities. So I, I'm I'm bringing yes. a lot of things together. But to come back to your point, I believe very strongly that Julia Middleton was was chosen or, and or groomed by this um, Chicago-based uh, social change. Uh, Powerhouse, um, which was doing all sorts of things in
0: America, which in turn would have taken its orders from some. This would have been planned at somewhere like the Trilateral Commission.
1: Well, uh, yep, same thing applies because all these things require quite big sums of money to to operate, and therefore you're going to come back to the big think tanks who are invariably funded by the people with big sums of money, whether it's Gates. Foundation, or it's George Soros, or hedge funds. Very often, if you look at the funding, uh, you see straight away that the funding is coming in from hedge funds. But if I can just add, just one going more, back, yes, Chuck please do. Just to add one one more bit, because because this is really building the picture, is that when we began to investigate common purpose, I, I gave a public talk and on about common purpose. <clears throat> which was recorded, videoed, and uh, <clears> at <throat> a certain point, I was saying on stage, "We've done a lot about common. We've done a lot of research on common purpose, but there's something about it that I can't put my finger on. There's something about it. It's very dark. There's something about it. It seems to be able to control people in a way I can't can I I can't understand, and." A few days later, I got an email from a man and he said, Brian, I am a, uh, a trained psychologist and I will tell you what Common Purpose is doing. They are using NLP. Uh, I had no idea what NLP was. I now know it's neuro-linguistic programming. And what is it? It's a form of psychological manipulation by which you can control the way people think and behave. And it rapidly became apparent this man did, uh, did some wonderful things because he took some of the talks that Julia Middleton had given and he, 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 he let her speak and then he broke down the language that she used and showed how it contained very strong NLP uh, components whereby the grammar and the words were being manipulated to affect the subconscious mind. Now, where this gets very interesting is by 2010 we have discovered the Conservative Cabinet Office document called Mindspace. That's M-I-N-D-S-P-A-C-E, Mindspace. If you just search in a search engine for PDF, the document will come up. But this is the document produced by the Conservative Cabinet Office in which they boasted, or they boast that their research development with the behavioural insights team had been so successful that they could, quote, change the way people thought and behaved and the individual would not necessarily know that their thought processes had changed, or they said If somebody suspects that their behavior has changed, they won't necessarily know how it's changed. Now this was really spooky stuff because you've got an organization which is quasi secret, burying its way into organizations and recruiting its future leaders. But what it appeared to be doing was using some pretty powerful sophisticated psychology in order to groom those people into the right way of thinking now join the <laughs> the head of the serpent with the tail we we have spent a bit of time saying we're being governed by people who are morally defective, they're criminals some of them are clearly child abusers drug takers um, adulterers and yet these politicians have in their hands, by their own words, the ability to use applied psychology to change the way we think. My goodness, this is serious stuff, right? And where did we see this weapon unleashed during lockdown? Because in the the SPY-B unit, which was the psychological unit, of the government's COVID advisory team, the minutes of the, uh, I think it was March uh, 20 meeting were released. we published publicised these things and talked about it, in which they openly discussed using applied psychology to make the public more frightened of COVID so that they would be more compliant to lockdown. And they even said, as a caveat, uh, some of the things have got to be applied very carefully, because if we use communities to police themselves, i.e., you know, you don't want to be locked down, but your neighbours turn on you and say, no, 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 you, you need to stay at home, otherwise we're going to die. If this psychology was overcooked, it could result in violence. Now, everything I'm saying is factual. It's based on the government's own documents. It's based on, and much of it has been commented on in the media, But, but the, you know, the mainstream media, I'm going to use the expression because more people know what the mainstream media is. The journalists are too stupid and bone idle to do the research, to follow this through. Because the government is using manipulative applied psychology everywhere it's using it within the political party on the mps it's been using it within the civil service to change people who should be um independent or well, sorry unbiased uh, civil servants acting in the best interest of the country it's using applied psychology on them it used it in the formulation of the lockdown procedures and it's using it in every single document that comes out of government, because NLP can be effective by the spoken word and by the written word.
0: Yes, but it's all I, I mean, I, I agree with you on laziness and, and, and so forth, but also it's because, you know, we're all or well, most of us are under a spell. We've been conditioned by the military-grade propaganda psyop. Uh, I mean, I was thinking, as you said that, of the thick of it. You know, very popular comedy series uh, about what we laugh laughingly call, affectionately call, the dark arts and spin. Yeah. Like you know, these, are, these are fun things. It's like the dark arts. Yeah, it's all it's yeah. all it's all a big joke. And actually, it is about manipulation of of people's yeah for for for, to to advance to to force through political agendas yeah. um and and we've been encouraged to think of it as a kind of yeah part of the warp and weft of political life something that we should we should find entertaining because it's what malcolm tucker does
1: yeah but of course suppression of the truth is is the dark side because the side that i support is is light and truth and love and if we've got a regime running which is as one thing suppressing truth that is of you know this is demonic and now we're beginning to pay we're beginning to pay well we're reaping the rewards of this because we can see society in front of our eyes getting more perverse Uh, darker and and more degenerate is is happening by the day and this is not surprising because what's been unleashed against us is is stuff which in its first you know iteration is is demonic
0: i agree with you before we go um this is a question more for me than i think most people are going to care about the answer but but Dacre, I I I I had a I, I was his chauffeur for a while once. Um, I, I won't tell you the circumstances. You found it, you've had it. an interesting life James. But 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 I, I I got on with him. I thought he was a, I thought he was a nice chap. Um, uh, you know, contrary to the rumor that you know this sort of fire-eating, foul-mouthed bully, which maybe he was too, but but he but I, I thought he was his heart was in the right place. Um, there is no way now that the male. Or the, let alone the male on Sunday, which is even worse, would do an expose of something like common purpose. They wouldn't talk about it. They're not interested in go. That they are so on board with the with the interests of the powers that be in every respect, whether it's the green agenda or or, or or the the death jab or whatever. They never question anything. And yet, it's not as though the male group has changed proprietorship. I mean, it's still got Lord Rothermere. He's been there for ages. Uh, who, who presumably must be part of the powers that be? Um, so why is it that, that the mail could that, that, that Dacre was given licence then, but but not but, but his equivalent today is not.
1: Well, I, I I think in the first instance that when when I think that when Paul Dacre printed the big splash on common purpose he he was personally motivated because he had been really put through the mill um with the media standards trust and full fact and and the you know the parliamentary committees they'd really gone for him so we gave him ammunition and he ran with that ammunition but because it was largely personal once he once he felt he got a bit of revenge he didn't then follow up on the investigation. He never, sent the, he never got the team to talk to us. So, it, you know, but I, I think personal motivation was a key part of what he did. And by coincidence, I didn't know it at the time I wrote the original letter to him. But within a month or something like that, there was the annual meeting of editors. So every year, the editors of all the big papers get together for a... know drinkies and bun fight and i believe it was at that gathering that year that he shared some of the story with the other papers well maybe he'd he'd already done his his article and it was ready to go and then he leaked a little bit because the other papers published a bit on it the same day and i i think that but the the other papers probably were stuffed with common purpose graduates themselves probably the male was yeah inevitably Um, but why do we not see the male reacting now to me it's because the fear control which was previously just operating at people at the top of the pyramid that has now sunk down in organisations where people right the way through the editorial team know that if they speak out on a subject they're going to lose their jobs so the the control system that is operating in this country is suppression of the truth, suppression of the media, and you do that by fear, and that's come right the way down through. I mean yesterday I was talking to a lady you know, worked in the BBC for quite a long time and and she, she was adamant that that people just would not speak out on subjects because BBC people are on short-term contracts, and you rock the boat, you're you're out of a job. And you know Andrew well, Bridgen is 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 a case of this, isn't it? One MP, maybe he's not got everything yeah. right, but he's done a lot right, and he's being hammered.
0: Totally. Yeah. Some of the things that the the the, the whips have been saying to him are just like terrifying. We're talking mafia enforcers here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we've got a system which suppresses truth, we've got a system which uses fear, we've got a system which is prepared to attack children, you know, give those a tick. What are you looking at? You're looking at a. I I believe, a, you know, this is demonic stuff. This is absolutely a spiritual battle. Some people call it good and evil, but it's, be, it's between the right belief system and the wrong belief
0: system. Well, on, on on that on that note, before before we go, one more question: How kosher is the Rains list? Oh, I, I
1: I believe that the Rains list um, was highly accurate. I I was never able to speak to the elderly lady psychologist that compiled it, um, but I was close enough to know how she formed the list, and she formed the list by the fact that. She was initially giving counselling to very damaged children and in the course of giving that counselling some of them started to talk about very unpleasant, very, very unpleasant abuse um, with a ritualistic element and and off her own back she decided to catalogue evidence and particularly to catalogue where children would mention names so the names that she put on the reigns list uh, i believe her rule was that the name had to be mentioned twice or more but it might have been four times or more i can't quite remember but the name had to have been mentioned by a number of children in a completely independent capacity before she would put the name on the list
0: so that's how she compiled that list because so, um, your, your colleague um, and, and Delling Pod regular almost um, Alex Thompson very bravely I think has read out the reigns list yeah. you can find it on the, on the internet and some of the names on that list they, it goes back to that thing we talked about earlier about people who believe that the British establishment is at best pompous at worst pompous but, but generally is benign We'll look. We'll listen to those names. or we'll read those names and think. But I thought, no, surely not him. That's, you know, that's how it how it works,
1: isn't it? Um, who was the very brave MP who's no longer? He died quite a while ago. Um, Dixon was it? Um, Jeffrey Dickens. Dickens, right? Yeah. So, so he started to speak out on this matter, and look what happened to him. Now. If this is all nonsense, why the need for all the aggression and the pushback? I I sat with an element of the police, I have sat with an element of the police team that were investigating Ted Heath. And they said to me that in their professional opinion, the evidence that they collected uh, was overwhelming. And if the man was still alive, he, he would be um taken through court proceedings for the abuse of children and i also say but, something but else wasn't that yeah what,
0: what 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 did they what what did you establish from them that, that that he had done well he was a pervert he he was a pervert who was using and abusing children i mean did you get as far as the, the story that who's that solicitor that that lawyer qc who's talked about him actually taking children onto his yacht yeah and bumping them off well
1: yeah sorry we we do you believe that we've, one we've come back into the very heavy stuff but you know maybe if you like we could he's we not going to sue bran no no but we could do another session on this but but the, the the reports and and I was able to talk to the police team um, were that their belief was that they were dealing with a an abuser of children and there were certain aspects to what he did, put him in a special character, uh, category. But of course the reality is with the abuse of children comes murdering children because
0: some people get a kick out of this. Oof. Well, Brian, I've so well. I, I don't know if I enjoyed talking to you, isn't, right? Because it's, it's, it's bad, some isn't it? the stuff Yeah, I, I, I just, just say crazy. to I, wish you
1: <laughs> I just say to people, um, welcome to my life, because this this is what I've gone through and what I've learned, and I'm I'm still learning from people on these issues. But the key bit is is to make sure that you balance your life out with good things. So whatever you enjoy doing get out for a walk or walk the dog or play music or paint or make sure if you are somebody that's trying to fight what's going on and you're a deep researcher do something to uplift your life at the same time otherwise
0: something will eat you can i add one more to that list i totally agree with that list in fact after this i'm going to walk the dog um, which is pricking up its ears because because it, it knows that um, is learn the Psalms yeah. because the Psalms offer you protection against demonic attack. Some, yes. for example, Psalm twenty-three. They don't like it. Yeah. Ha- had you crossed that threshold, and 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 you know, the Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. He maketh yeah. me to lie down in green pastures. Yeah. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. If you if you said those words, the, the, and, the demon and, would have had.
1: The the other one that goes with this, of course, is prayer. And why are they busy, busily trying to stamp out prayer at the moment? No praying zones. Why are they doing this? Because the really bad people are utterly terrified of prayer. That's a whole other discussion. Should you wish?
0: I think we, we you've 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 whetted my appetite already, Brian. I think um, this is it's, it's going to be great. I'm I'm almost tempted to split this up into two podcasts because like. Why, why throw away two hours worth of material and one, I don't know anyway, Brian, Brian Gerrish, um, tell people where we can find you you can find me with a
1: really great team at the UK, UK Column uh, uh, Mike Robinson and uh, Josie and Stephanie and Kenny and Debbie and a whole host of other people that's www.ukcolumn dot org, <laughs> and at that point my dog has arrived to cough and splutter.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Brian, again, thank you. Um, uh, after all, after this long, long wait, it, it's more than justified, all, all, all the wait. Um, so thank you very much. It remains only to, to, to me to thank all the people who support me. I really do appreciate it. The people who support me on uh, Substack mm-hmm. and on Locals is probably the best place. Um, Subscribe Star patreon and you can buy me a coffee people buy me coffees and that's really appreciated do support my my actual sponsors um uh the the the, the gold um company the uh, the pure gold company which i'm, I'm going to um uh you'll, you'll, you'll see the details below and all the, all the other um people who sell their products through me as well um thank you very much for watching and thank you again bro okay thank you bye-bye um, All right.